Hey, hey, Spook Squad listeners, welcome to another episode of the podcast. My name is Dan. And I am Allie. We have a really fun episode for you today. Yes, we do, because it's on every horror fan's mind this week, and maybe even some non-horror fans. We are going to talk about Child's Play. Yes, and in fact, we're going to be talking about both of them, meeting both the 1988 original directed by Tom Holland, who would go on to direct Stephen King's Thinner, Mm -hmm. and written, of course, by Don Mancini. Yes. As well as the remake that just came out, directed by Lars Klevberg, who hasn't done much before this outside of some short film. Right. And, of course, in order to do that, we're going to talk a little bit about the legacy of Child's Play, what went into creating one of the most iconic characters in all of horror, and one of the most infamous franchises. Speaking of the franchise in general, let's give a little background on why this film is controversial for some horror fans. Yes, we really should. Now, we talked a little bit about this on our Summer Horror Roundup episode, but I think it bears restating here because it really is important. So, writer Don Mancini has stuck with the character of Chucky throughout the years, writing basically every Chucky project and even directing a few, Yep, including the infamous and arguably queer Seed of Chucky, as well as later installments like Cult of Chucky. Yes, uh, there are a few great articles going around about Seed of Chucky, actually, and its role as a queer film for Pride Month. Uh, All pretty interesting stuff. I might link that in the description of this episode, actually, so uh, look for that. I'll have to check those out, too. Anyway, you may be surprised to learn that, for someone who has been involved in every Chucky project... Don Mancini is not involved in this remake in any way. And in fact, he's quite unhappy about it. In fact, Mancini appeared on Mick Garris's postmortem podcast. Yeah, huge, huge horror podcast. I believe on the uh, Fangoria Network, so it's a big deal. Uh, Mick is a filmmaker, and he talks to other filmmakers, just, just to add a bit of context to what Ali is saying here. Right, and on that podcast... Mancini said that MGM owns the rights to the first Child's Play film, and so basically, they can do whatever they want with it. So they went ahead with the remake with a different writer and director, but asked if Mancini wanted a credit as an executive producer, although they wouldn't have any real input in the film itself. uh, I don't know. It's kind of like a slap in the face, I think, like a little... Well, this is what Mancini said. He said, We said no thank you because we have our ongoing thriving business with Chucky. Mm -hmm. Obviously, my feelings were hurt, and I did create the character and nurture the franchise for three fucking decades. The filmmaker went on to add, So when someone says, Oh yeah, we would love to have your name on the film, It was hard not to feel like I was being patronized. They just wanted our approval, which I strenuously denied them. 
Right. I mean, totally. The guy has a point. I mean, this franchise is his baby. They clearly didn't want his input at all. Now, lots of people have mixed feelings on this as a result, like Mancini and the rest of the team uh, have done a lot of weird things with the series over the years, and some stuff I like and some stuff I don't, but they have their plans and idea for what the series should be, and they even have a TV show coming out on, I think, sci-fi. They're continuing these ideas. Uh, so the thing is, you know, Mancini feels like the new movie's gonna take away from his livelihood, make his series kind of look bad, all this stuff. And I have to say, I, I get his frustration. Yeah, I mean, he makes it very clear in the interviews that this is still how he makes a living. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely something icky about all of it. Yeah, yeah, we're going to be fair to the film. Honestly, we are. But, you know, we thought it was important to frame the context of this film coming out of the canon of the Child's Play series as a whole. Yeah, I mean, he makes it very clear in the interview that this is still how he makes a living. Right, right. So there's definitely something icky about all of it. Yeah, but you know what? We're going to be fair to the film. I mean, honestly, we are. But we thought it was important to frame the context of this film kind of coming out of the canon of Child's Play as a whole. We thought it, it was important to be fair in that way. Totally. But maybe we should give even more context before digging into the actual content of these films. Yeah, I think that's a great idea, Allie. However, I, I feel like we're going to need a little bit of help transitioning into that segment. And uh, you know what that means, I believe. I do know what that means. That's right. Please welcome the Spook Squad podcast house band, The Severed Heads in My uh, Face. Jeez, uh, up on me. Uh, how, how is that even... Possible. Oh, we get around, baby. We're smooth as hell, baby. Don't I know it? Well, Chip, could you please help us introduce our next segment? Oh, of course. We're all big Child's Play fans, actually. So we're excited for this one. <laughs> Take it away, boys. One, two, three. Background. Thanks, Chip. <laughs> Okay, so let us dive right in here. Okay, so Child's Play, one of the most iconic series in all of horror, and don't just take it from me, many people feel this way. We asked our friends for some thoughts a couple weeks ago. I uh, asked folks for their first experiences with horror, what their first experiences with horror movies were. I got a lot of cool and interesting answers, so thank you so much for that, but uh, more than one person responded with Child's Play, or Chucky, or some variation of that. And uh, still more people later, like uh, certain friends of the podcast, our one friend of the podcast, Emily, she said she saw the original when she was older, and she still liked it. Uh, other folks, like our friends Chris and Darnell, uh, they said that they've only seen later installments in this series and liked the comedic direction and the new approaches. So it's been influential in that way for many of us and one of those classic foundational horror movies. Absolutely. In fact, my favorite response to that question that we asked our friends mm -hmm. My dear friend Claire said that her parents saw the original on a date. Oh, wow. And her mother's response was, I cannot believe that it became a franchise. <laughs> I guess I could understand that. You would never really see it coming unless you had the hindsight that we have now. Right. So when I was a child, there were two things I was forbidden to watch. One was Child's Play, <laughs> which can almost make sense. Yeah, almost. I get and that. And the other was The Simpsons. <laughs> and 
even at the ripe age of 28, I still don't see the connection. I don't either. But you know what? I was actually banned from watching The Simpsons as well. Same thing. I don't know. It was considered inappropriate or whatever. But Child's Play, it was one of those things that you can only watch, like, over your friend's house or whatever. Like, on a sleepover because it was totally forbidden. If their parents had rented it from Blockbuster or something, you could sneak in the middle of the night and get it and have a late horror movie marathon. You ever do anything like that? But see, what's so weird about the... the forbidden nature of child's play is that I grew up on horror movies with my father. Oh, yeah, that's right. So child's play is kind of like a weird anomaly. But It, it was my mother's rule. Okay, well, that <laughs> that does make sense. But I think that part of what makes it work, though, as like a first horror experience, too, is that you have the character of the kid, Andy. And I think when you're little, whether it's intentional or not, Putting that kid in the movie makes you relate to it more. It makes you see someone like yourself at risk in the film, which you, like, don't always see when you're a kid because this kid is not just a bystander. He is definitely one of the victims as well. So that plus the fact that it's definitely not intended for kids at all kind of makes it perfect. It's the perfect taboo film to test the waters of what horror is. And I feel like it fits that role very perfectly for many people. Now, before I respond, I would like to add that I was not 18 until I watched Child's Play. Oh, my gosh. And it still terrified me. Dude, I totally get it. We're going to get into some of the good reasons for that later in the podcast. But now that I'm 28 and we have seen both the original and the remake together, Mm -hmm. I am no longer afraid. Well, I guess that's good. But we can still appreciate it from a different perspective. Of course. Now... Back to what you were saying. Right. I totally get all of that. And its fame isn't a coincidence. Right. A lot went into making Child's Play, the film that was so memorable to all of us. In an interview, Don Mancini said in the original script, Child's Play 1988 was at first a satire on toy marketing and merchandising for children before the idea morphed into a horror film instead. You know, I I find this so interesting. I love hearing about the backstories of films like this and the transformations that they go through. And this is particularly interesting because it became a horror movie, right? But the satire thing, I I gotta ask, Allie, do you think you would still consider it satire like in a certain way? Or do you think it just totally lost that when it became a horror movie? No, no, I definitely still think that there's aspects of it. I, I, I think that there are aspects of it in there, but what about what about the remake? Do you think that the remake could count as satire? Um I I do, with uh all the implications about what we're teaching our children and what we're teaching AI and the way that they learn from us. That's, I guess, a really good point. I guess I saw it, like, as a commentary, but I guess it could be a satire as well in certain aspects of it. So, you know what? I mean, like, it's pretty interesting. The early script actually went through a lot of changes of this kind, if I remember correctly. Am I right about that? Yeah. The first draft of the script was completed in the summer of 1985, and referenced Chucky as Buddy, who came to life after mixing blood with Andy and killed those against Andy. Ooh. For example, the babysitter, what a trope, mm-hmm. and teacher, mm-hmm. manifesting Andy's loneliness and isolation 
from an overworked mother and absent father. In addition to being a more psychologically driven horror film, Buddy also only came alive at night when Andy was asleep. Interesting. The working title for the film was actually Bloody Buddy. (laughs) And it is now widely considered to be inspired by Hasbro's line of My Buddy Toy Dolls. Interesting. Which also had overalls and striped shirts. Yeah. So it actually really makes sense with the satire theme that we were talking about when you consider like how much of that original script really did draw from something that existed in the real world, that My Buddy doll. Yeah, you can really see the connection when you put it like that. Also, the original plot idea was to have lifelike good guy dolls that had blood and latex skin. Whoa, dude. If the kids tore the latex skin, they could go out and buy official good guy bandaged. That's, like, one of the weirdest concepts for a toy I've ever heard, but it's also, like, amazing in a way. In a Blood Brother pact, Andy cut his own hand and mixed his blood with Chucky's, thus causing him to come alive and become human. Mm. And finally, Don Mancini stated in an interview that his original script toyed with the audience a bit longer making them wonder if young Andy was the killer rather than Chucky. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I like how dark it is. You could see that they had the core idea of the doll and wanting to involve it in a supernatural sort of black magic element to it, but they were still fighting out the right approach. And I really like the idea of, like, messing with the audience, making them think that the kid is a killer, but eventually they landed on horror and, you know, the rest is history. Right. But a huge part of making that horror work was the design of Chucky himself and how to make the character feel frightening despite the admitted absurdity of the plot. Totally. So what makes Chucky tick, so to speak? The film used various ways to portray Chucky, including remote control animatronics and little people or child actors. Whoa. For example, in the scene where Chucky runs behind babysitter Maggie in the hallway, Chucky was played by Alex Vincent's younger sister. Hmm. Various animatronics and cosmetics were used for every scene throughout the movie. Chucky's cosmetics transitioned from looking toy-like to a more human look. The film created multiple Chucky animatronics, such as a flailing tantrum Chucky, a walking Chucky, and a stationary Chucky. Hmm. The animatronic's face was controlled by a remote control through a rig that goes on one's face and captures facial movements. Uh, Pretty advanced for the time. So listen, I I have to say, this is one of the best arguments for practical effects that I have seen in some time. This film came out in 88. And yeah, it's a little outdated in some ways, but Chucky himself actually looks incredible. His movements are very unnerving. His face gets really creepy towards the end there, and the movement of his face and mouth is actually really, really good. Like, his mouth actually matches the dialogue he's speaking. Incredibly impressive, and as a result, the film still holds up today when you revisit it. Fun fact! The original Chucky animatronic doll was kept, stripped, 
and reused as the Crypt Keeper for season one of Tales from the Crypt. <laughs> the eyes were kept, so the Crypt Keeper has Chucky's eyes. And you know what? I can actually see it now that I'm thinking about it. Like, dude, that's incredible. Especially when he's on fire at the end of the movie and you just see him, like, burnt. You really can totally see the resemblance. Like, seriously, such a huge part of horror history. I know. And and listen, Child's Play is just a huge part of horror history in general that holds either a dear place in people's hearts or it's something that they look at with contempt almost. And there's a bunch of reasons for that. For example, uh, Catherine Hicks, uh, Karen, Andy's mom in the first one, and Kevin Yager, Chucky's creator, uh, met on set and were married a year later. You may also know Catherine Hicks as the mother on Seventh Heaven or as Carol in Peggy Sue Got Married. Uh, Kevin Yager, on the other hand, is a special effects guru of sorts, with one of the most popular films he worked on being the second nightmare on Elm Street, Freddy's Revenge. They are still married to this day, actually, so the film brought people together. Yes, but it was also quite controversial as well. Mm -hmm. The Chucky films have always been accused of inspiring violence in children, actually. One case linked to the series was a gang in Manchester kidnapping and murdering a 16-year-old girl. Jeez. While they tortured her, they forced her to listen to recordings of the gang leader repeating the catchphrase, I'm Chucky, wanna play? Yeesh. Director Tom Holland has always defended the first film from these accusations stating that viewers of horror movies could only be influenced by their content if they were unbalanced to begin with. That is seriously wild. But honestly, it makes just as much sense as blaming, like, that couple who tripped on acid and decided to become the characters from Natural Born Killers. Do you remember that story? No. Well, like, clearly that's not the movie's fault, but, like, this is around the era, you know, like, kind of the tail end of the satanic panic, and uh, this conversation about violence and media and how it affects kids was happening uh, all over the country. A Child's Play was a scapegoat for this movement in the same way that, like, heavy metal bands were, and all of it was just nonsense. Yeah, but people took it really seriously. Get this. During the initial release... A crowd of protesters formed around the entrance to MGM, calling for a ban on the film. Jeez. They claimed it would incite violence in children. Local news, news reporters were broadcasting live from the scene, and the producer David Kirshner was watching, disturbed by what he saw. Jeffrey Hilton, who worked with Hirschner at MGM, said he could defuse the situation in 10 minutes. Okay. Hilton went down and spoke to the ringleader, and then the group disbanded to the chagrin of the newscasters. Hilton never specified whether it was threats or diplomacy that saved the day. Whoa. One of the great mysteries in all of horror. But listen to that. Listen to that story. Come on. That's completely ridiculous. Like, yes, the film pushes buttons on purpose, but that reaction is totally and completely absurd. Yeah, but it was enough to scare MGM, honestly. Yeah, true. Even though the film ended up being successful, the opening weekend was hurt by the protests, and the film didn't make back its $9 million budget, but eventually it grossed more than double that in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Despite this, Child's Play was originally disowned by MGM, 
who were basically ashamed of the controversial subject matter. Universal bought the rights to the sequel, but with the passage of time, MGM seems to have changed their mind on the value of the series. Changed their minds indeed. And that is what finally brings us to our deeper analysis of these films. So let's start talking about the actual content of the films themselves in these next segments. All right, let's start it off. Severed Heads, tell me, what's the same? What's the same between these films is actually very limited. The remake really changes the approach to the story and ultimately kind of changes the feel of the film as a result. However, it's interesting to look at what qualities this director, Lars Klevberg, decided to keep. Yes, I completely agree. The things about this movie that end up being the same fascinate me because apparently... Those were considered the core components of the story that couldn't be lost, or at least the qualities that they saw value in and wanted to bring or hang on to, or at least an homage, or something. In any case, there are some similarities which sort of seem minor, but we're going to talk about why we think that they were preserved. So, first off, and perhaps most significantly, the actual acquisition of the doll is based very much on the same premise of a struggling single mother who gets a popular toy for her kid through somewhat shady means. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that that narrative is very much the same. If any of you remember the rise of the Furbies, your mothers might be able to relate to trying to find that popular toy, the one thing that a struggling single mother knows would make her child happy right like the endlessly parodied tickle me elmo that was so popular back in the day it's yes it's playing on the exact same phenomenon the exact same desperation yeah and although refreshingly this time i gotta say it's aubrey plaza very much doing her aubrey plaza thing and personally I love her in this film. I love that she's kind of an unconventional mom who doesn't baby Andy, and I think that's a big part of why it works, honestly. Yes, but sort of similarly, the reason why the doll is able to form a relationship with Andy at first is because his mom is a single mother always busy working. Yeah. That's why this concept of Chucky being your friend as a kid even works in the first place. True. Uh, Should also mention that the movies are very amusingly uh, sticking to the same names for our three sort of main characters here. Uh, The kid is still Andy, which is extra hilarious considering this thing debuted the same weekend as Toy Story 4. Uh, I kind of love that, and the ad campaign they had for it of Chucky murdering the toys from Toy Story was kind of funny. Uh, But uh, the mom is still Karen Barclay, and the cop is still named Mike. Although in this one, he's not investigating the case so much as he's just in the same apartment as Karen and Andy while visiting his mother. Yeah, and we'll totally get into that, but I just kind of find it funny that they, in the movie, they they kept those key components, albeit in different ways. It ends up working as kind of an homage or like a wink to the audience who knows the characters from the original. Oh, maybe we should talk about the animatronics just a bit more. Oh yeah, totally. Good idea. So, famously, as we said earlier, Child's Play made use of groundbreaking animatronics to bring Chucky to life. As lovers of practical effects, we were worried that the new doll would be CGI. 
unfortunately, the new Chucky is actually a combination of CGI and six, that's right, six different animatronic dolls. Mm -hmm. This actually makes it somewhat similar to the original, which I believe had maybe close to nine different ones, each for different kinds of movements. Yes, and uh, Todd Masters of Masters FX is behind the new polarizing design for the updated and modernized Chucky doll. Uh, he has an impressive resume of films for his macabre makeup and special effects designs. Uh, they've all been utilized in uh, one of our favorites, actually, American Mary, uh, which immediately gives this guy cred in my book if he worked with the Suska sisters. Uh, you may also recognize his work from films like Fido, Slither, Snakes on a Plane, just to name a few. Uh, but yeah, the CGI is mostly utilized in the facial movements of the doll, actually. And some people I've heard really notice it and other people don't. But uh, beyond that, like for similarities, beyond that. Yeah, beyond that, the similarities sort of end for this one. Although maybe we should mention that these films both still take place in apartment buildings. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the exterior of the building looks incredibly similar to the original. Yeah, you're right. I mean, like, it it really does, in my opinion. And can I be honest? There were multiple shots of the outside of the apartment building, like, panning upward. The fact that they lived up, like, five floors or something again. I really thought that this movie was setting us up for, like, a repeat of one of the classic kills from the original where the babysitter falls out of the window. I get that. But the film never really uses the apartment setting as a killer set piece in this way. Honestly, the setting mostly serves as a device to get all the characters in one space, which is pretty clever. True, uh, plus another few uh, other odd pieces that we'll describe in a moment. But uh, finally, uh, this is the one I'm really interested in, in terms of just discussing similarities, this last point. Uh, in the original... The longer that Chucky stays in the doll's body, the more human he becomes. So he can feel pain and ultimately die because his heart becomes human, right? But in this new one, we could argue that there's a similar thing going on because Chucky is an AI in this new one. And we could argue that the more he learns from people, the more he takes in, the more human he ultimately becomes by the end. And the more feelings he has for protecting Andy. It's kind of a stretch, but it works because I think that idea still represents the sort of core of what the movie is. Right. Like, even though the films make very different statements, if any, if you want to argue that. And they have different tones overall. The narrative of Chucky changing in some respect and that driving the plot forward is still there. It's debatable what humanity means. Excellent point, Allie. Now, uh, there are some other details of what they kept the same, obviously. The red hair, the striped shirt, the overall look, the fact that Chucky has an affinity for knives. But, you know, all these things are features. The core of these movies really has changed. So I think it's time for us to dive into the differences with our next segment. Tell me, what is it, Severed Heads? What's So, in order to talk about what's different between these two films, let's start with the 1988 original and some of the things that really set it apart. But perhaps first, we should make this clear. While Chucky and the Child's Play series are often remembered for being campy, 
comedic and ridiculous, the first installment plays the horror pretty straight. Yes. And ends up being pretty dark as a result. While both are still horror films that both seem aware of the inherent ridiculousness of their own concepts, the first seemed willing to push things into even further territory. Right, totally. And in my opinion, that's largely due to the approach in the films as to how Chucky got quote-unquote screwed up or became evil or whatever. Like, the two origin stories could not be more different. So, in the original... The Chucky doll is possessed by the spirit of a murderous criminal named Charles Lee Ray after he escapes into a toy store during a shootout and, bleeding out, chants some voodoo words over the doll to transfer his soul into it. Okay, okay. So, let's let that sink in (laughs) and let's talk about it because that's ridiculous, right? I mean, like, saying it out loud, it definitely sounds... Very, very silly. But I gotta tell you, in hindsight, when compared with the other film, there are some interesting things about this that still hold up. Fun fact, Chucky's full name, Charles Lee Ray, is derived from the names of notorious killers Charles Manson, Lee Harvey Oswald, assassin of John F. Kennedy, and James Earl Ray, assassin of Martin Luther King. Yes, that's right. And oh, another little fun fact about this film. Get this, because this is really wild. The film was actually released on the same date, November 9th, 1988, that the opening scene takes place on where Charles Lee Ray transfers his soul into the doll. It's the same day. The same day? Who does that? Has another movie ever done that? I mean, I guess, like, Independence Day kind of, like, almost came out on Independence Day. And I guess, like, Midsummer is technically coming out mid-summer. <laughs> but honestly, this is one of my favorite examples that I have ever seen of this concept being executed. Mine too. So, Dark Origins. And, you know, before we get to the sequel and start kind of talking about the choices that it made, I gotta say, revisiting this film... There are so many things that made it memorable, but Brad Dourif, who plays the murderer and who also provides the voice of Chucky, he's kind of perfect. I mean, like, for that first scene where it's, like, halfway through the film where Karen is threatening to throw Chucky into the fire. Oh, yeah, when he first starts attacking her. Yeah, yeah, and he's like, so, excuse me, I'm gonna be, like, imitating him, but he's like, you stupid bitch, you filthy slut, and I remember that moment, like, Seeing that moment when I was a kid, like, I remember it stuck with me for that long. And I think maybe I was younger. I remembered it because there was cursing in it, right? But in retrospect, it's just an effective and absurd moment. And this time around, it made me laugh, like, in a good way with how crazy this film was willing to get. I just, I loved that about it. It's not that the new one isn't willing to get crazy. It's just, okay, let's just say it. Okay, okay. So... Try to remember how absurd the black magic idea was, right? Because in this new one, Chucky is evil because a disgruntled sweatshop employee got fired and decided to take off the quote-unquote safety mechanisms on this robot AI toy, including a setting that is literally called quote-unquote violence inhibitors, which I don't know why a toy has that anyway, He does this, and then he kills himself, and then Chucky is shipped off to cause mayhem. Can I talk about this for a second? Please, by all means. Okay, so I've been seeing a lot of people online have problems with the origin story. Me too. And I get it. 
It's kind of stupid that literally any employee could do this, maybe even by accident. (laughs) It's dumb that there is an evil mode on the doll that needs to be shut off. Good point, good point. But a couple things. One, I would argue it's not an evil mode, like everyone has been saying, because as we said earlier, kind of the point of this movie is Chucky's learning process. He sees stuff on TV and hears things that other people say to him. And because he's defective, he becomes more and more twisted. Mm -hmm. I would argue this is way more important than the intro. Kind of for both of these movies. I would maybe argue that how we get to the plot doesn't matter as much as what the rest of the movie is going for. Yeah, that is a great point, and I'm pretty sure I agree with you. You know, this is definitely going to rub some people the wrong way, like, right from the start, but it's really just sort of an in, so to speak, to the rest of what the movie is trying to do. So, okay, then was it? what is it trying to do, do you think? Well... I I think that the boring answer is that this kind of ends up being a commentary on AI and quote-unquote smart technology and the potential perils of that stuff or whatever. But I don't know. It could be more interesting than that as well. There's a message about the way that we educate kids somewhere in there or the way that, like, jealous, controlling love could be toxic or the ways that you can get sucked into stuff that's not good for you when you're a lonely kid or... I don't know, but, like, it really hinges heavy on the AI and the learning stuff, so I can see why people would just stop reading into it at that point, but I think the movie actually does have more to say overall. Don't forget, I loved this. One of the places Chucky learns to be violent in the reboot, he watches everyone watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 and having a great time laughing at the violence. Yes! Honestly, I loved the shout out to that film. I love that we get to see Bill Mosley's character doing his thing. I love that the doll gets confused by this. I love it. The movie doesn't seem to want to engage with that too much, though, like in terms of driving home some kind of message about like violence in media, thankfully. Uh, If anything, it seems to be like kind of just thrown in there for the horror heads. Let's talk about the differences in Andy, because I thought that was significant. Definitely. So, in the original, Andy is six years old, and in this version, he's basically double that age. Yeah, somewhere around there. It's like his birthday very soon. So, this ultimately ends up being a pretty huge change. I mean, almost everything kind of changes about the movie with this change. Well, I would argue, actually, that it does change entirely. See, in the original, our main character is Karen, working together with Mike the Cop to solve the mystery. Yes. Andy is very much a manipulated victim and a target at the end of the film. In the reboot, Andy becomes our main character without question. That's true. It's all about him and his relationship with Chucky and Chucky's misguided attempts to protect him. Yep, you're right. I mean, it is completely different in that way. I mean, first, it makes more sense for Andy to be using a toy that's actually like a smart device since it's more modern and age-appropriate for him. But also, those early scenes, uh, Andy actually has a relationship with Chucky that's not built on manipulation. Uh, In the original, Chucky bonds with Andy by, like, talking to him and tricking him into thinking that they're friends, uh, they're friends, you know? Uh, But in this one, Andy is a lonely kid, and Chucky kind of does take the place of his friend for a while. So it actually kind of makes the arc of not getting rid of him immediately make more sense. There's a conflict there. 
So that's a key difference, too. In the original, Chucky is malicious toward Andy and targets him. In this one, he's the subject of Chucky's misguided attempts at pleasing him. That's it, exactly. Also wanted to bring this up. I love how this movie acknowledges right from the beginning that the doll looks creepy. Oh, right. Andy even uses Chucky to scare his mom's boyfriend in one scene. I think that was smart because it kind of deals with the issue of, well, the doll looking creepy and scary. (laughs) Right, an important issue. Like, why would a kid have something so creepy? This movie uses that quality by just acknowledging it, and that was smart. Yeah, that was a good move for sure, and it just kind of added to the humor. I mean, I guess it was more normal in the 80s. There were just kind of creepy dolls all over the place, but it made more sense for the context of this movie. I mean, both movies are funny, but like kind of in different ways, I guess. Like, all right, uh, maybe I would argue that the new one is maybe a little bit more humor-driven. In the original, I feel like it's played pretty straight like we said but chucky is just so ridiculous and fun to watch that it makes things hilarious sometimes yes whereas in the remake not only do we have the fabulous aubrey plaza who is obviously an incredible comedic actress but we also have the idea of this doll grossly misinterpreting information in these horrific and violent ways exactly So that's what makes it funny a lot of the time. Like when he calls the cop a narc or, Mm -hmm. of course, the this is for Tupac scene. Yeah, I was personally a fan of let's open you up and see what makes you tick. That is a good one. On that note, let's talk about Mark Hamill and Brad Dourif. Yes, let's. Two men who are quite different in some ways. I mean, Brad Dourif just... An icon, dude. A horror icon, acting icon. He has nearly 200 acting credits to his name. He's been in Cuckoo's Nest. He's been in Dune. He's been in Lord of the Rings. He's been in Rob Zombie's Halloween. Like, so much more. This dude is just so good at inhabiting his roles. Even just roles, like, that are voices. Like Chucky. Chucky is just one of his masterpieces. Always has been iconic the way that he did it. You know, Durf would always rehearse with the other actors and record his lines beforehand so that they could get the movements of Chucky's mouth like exactly right and I think that's incredible that was a huge part of bringing Chucky to life in such a significant way right but in the new one Mark Hamill Ah, the king the king forget it I know you love him for being the Joker I he is my Joker forever as much as I love Heath Ledger's performance and even Nicholson Hamill will always be my Joker, man. I grew up with him. I grew up with him as that. I read the comics with, like, his voice in my head. You know what I mean? But he's just an incredible voice actor in general, doing everything from regular show and Adventure Time to Oh Yeah cartoons and even Hey Arnold. Oh, and uh, Metalocalypse as well. See? It totally makes sense why they chose him. Oh, totally. Yeah, he's a big name. He's a talent. He's good at being creepy. He's He's got everything. So how do you think he did in the new one? Well, I actually think that he was really good because Mark Hamill always has that kind of sense of humor behind his voice acting work that just makes a lot of the stuff about Child's Play work. And his voice, the tone of his voice, was definitely just creepy and offsetting but i don't know that it had the same roughness that i enjoyed so much about brad duriff's performance in the original ali what did you think 
It did not have the same roughness. Yeah. It was it was almost sweet while creepy at the same time. Yeah, I guess which is like what else can you do because it's a toy. It's supposed to be a malfunctioning toy, not a serial killer. So to, for it to become overly gruff wouldn't make sense. But I you know, I missed it a little bit, but Mark did so much with the role that ultimately it doesn't seem like a a total loss. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. It was certainly no faux pas. Yeah, no, no, no. I I definitely think that he was the right choice. So, you know, they both have something to offer. It's just different. I think that, like, the preference on this one is going to go both ways, depending on your sensibilities and your relationship with Chucky. If you're attached to the old one in a big way, this might not scratch that itch for you. But if it's your first go-round with the series or you're kind of looking for a fresh take on the series at this point— I, I think you really might get something out of this one. It, it, it keeps moving. It really keeps moving. keeps you interested. But let's talk about the differences that some people might have problems with a little bit. I want to talk to you, Allie, about the smart home aspect of it, that whole AI. What did you think about it? I thought that it was all part of the social commentary that the AI universe was making a point of. So, but let's talk about some of its specific and individual uses in the film. Like, when the janitor is killed in the basement, is like some of the biggest showcase of that sort of stuff. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. So we have the lights turning on and off, which is just a classic horror movie trope and a good one. You turn those lights on and off in the way he just says, like, what is it? Kaz, lights on. Cast lights on. Like he gets more scared. Like I, I really enjoyed that about it. What What is another part of it that you enjoyed from that scene? One of the smart home aspects that worked for you. That Chucky was able to control his smart Caslin products. But which crank, one? Crank, like, cranking up the thermometer. Yeah, 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 yeah. I really enjoyed Turning that. on the table saw. The table saw. We got to talk about the table saw more later. But th- can I tell you one that did not work for me? is the car scene. How did you feel about the car scene? I I think it had potential, but I think it missed the mark. I, I'm just kind of over this trope of, like, the smart car being controlled or whatever. Like, because, listen, no matter what smart car you have, you I don't think that anyone would buy a car that allows a car to, like, just disable an airbag and a seatbelt like nothing. Like, I get it. He's in the car. It's malfunctioning. But, like... I don't know. It, it just, it lost me at that point. It seemed like that was one of the only kills that I was not impressed by that didn't seem necessary. Do you think you could agree with that? I do. And honestly, while we're on this, on the subject, one of the creepiest uses of it for me was Chucky's ability to hack into everything by Kaslin which meant controlling the images on the TV. Yeah, the TVs, like, that was definitely, I really like the scene at the end where he is actually, speaking of the car crash, this is actually the only thing I like about it, is that he plays the footage of her getting killed in the car on the TV, and as a result, Andy smashes the TV with the baseball bat, and Mom walks in, and she thinks he's crazy. Like, I thought that was a really effective use of that stuff. The way that he would use the TVs to taunt Andy, that worked for me. But the overall AI commentary, it was kind of hit or miss for me. What would you say? It wasn't a miss for me. I liked it. I thought that it was realistic in a sense. It's 
It's a dystopian future that could be headed our way. Yeah, the modern take worked for you. Well, you know, like, I, I, I think we really covered a lot of aspects of this. I think that pretty much says a lot of it. Well, we're missing quite an important one. Oh, yeah, we have, haven't we? Do you want to say? Maybe we can say that we have saved some of the best for last, actually. Uh, sure. Well, one of the things that has always defined the Child's Play series from the beginning, and certainly later on, is the kills. The series is known for its elaborately staged kills. Yes, yes. And ridiculous, sometimes graphic, special effects. Often graphic. Does the remake stack up to the original in this bloody, important way? Let's find out on The Kill Corner. Kill Corner. Aw, you introduced it for the first time. I love it. It felt good. Hell yes. All right, so let's get into these. Can we start with one of my favorites from the original, please? Well, we mentioned it briefly, right? The babysitter? Yeah, the babysitter, which kicks off everything in the original. Babysitter comes over to watch Andy while Karen works a late shift in the middle of the night, and Chucky starts sneaking around. The babysitter goes to investigate, gets whacked in the head with a hammer, and stumbles falling through the glass and out a seven or eight story window. I love the slow motion shot of the fall. It's so good. Mm -hmm. Fun fact, the babysitter's death scene originally had her being electrocuted while taking a bath. The scene was used later in Bride of Chucky. Yes, another classic kill that they actually talk about on Mythbusters. And I gotta say, it's one of the few times when the so-called myth was confirmed rather than busted. You will totally die if you get electrocuted in the bathtub like that. Be safe, y'all. Yes, be safe. But, yeah, that fall. I love the fall. It looks awesome. It looks super convincing like she was really falling. It is super, super memorable. I want to talk about the explosion. Oh, man, yes. So Chucky manipulates Andy to lead him away from school and to this rundown neighborhood where the getaway driver who left Chucky to die is squatting in some house. Mm -hmm. Long story short, Chucky turns on the gas and when the guy fires the gun. Oh, yeah. It's it's all over in a a very big way. (laughs) But dude, the whole house is completely demolished. Yeah. They seriously blew that building up. I mean, it looked broken down and everything, but they really blew that thing up big time. Yeah, like it's this movie just kind of loved property damage in general, I noticed. <laughs> yes, the fire to the toy store yeah. and intro. Yeah, exactly. Apparently they used a closed down Chinese shop for that opening toy store scene. They just kind of burned it. It was not being used. So Whoa. Yeah. And uh, what else? Uh, What about the voodoo doll? Let's talk about the voodoo doll. Oh, right. This one is so cool. So Chucky goes to interrogate another guy who apparently taught him the voodoo spell or whatever. Anyway, he has this voodoo doll of the guy. And so to get him to talk, he just starts like snapping the limbs of the doll to make his bones break and stuff. Ooh, the sound effects are so good here. The cracking is so loud. You just have a visceral reaction to what you're seeing. I, I totally agree. And it was also smart because Chucky is like, you know, a doll. Like, I know he stabs people in the movie, but he just kind of needs that element of surprise. The voodoo is a way of making him scary in a way that's kind of like easy to animate a doll doing. Do you know what I mean? 
Yeah, and all right, let's just say it. Chucky gets set on fire. Oh, Allie, you know I love that. I do know you love that. Do you remember why I love scenes with stuff on fire? Because you say they can't fake it? Exactly. And most of the time, that's totally true. I have seen some CGI fire in newer movies, but it looks terrible, and I feel like they know it looks terrible. It's so much better. It's so much more visceral, like you said, with real fire. You can really feel it as, like, he thrashes and struggles in this film. You can almost feel the heat coming off of that. It really looks real. Totally agreed. But, Allie, what about the kills in the new one? Well, personally... I was pretty surprised by them. Honestly, same here. Like, the gore kind of caught me off guard in a in a good way, if that makes sense. That totally makes sense. Well, early on, they were really emphasizing that he wanted to use knives, like classic Chucky. Right. We, we didn't really mention it, but whenever it's not an elaborate kill or something, Chucky basically uses, like, a huge kitchen knife. Stabbing, slashing ankles, all that good stuff. You know, the fun stuff. Well, he definitely still does that in this film, and it looks pretty good. I'm thinking in particular of when he's slashing the ankles of the janitor, or stabs him in the chest, sort of. Okay, so just really, I know this is the kill corner, but just really briefly, you really don't think that that janitor looks like Jack Black? No, not at all. Not at all? Like, you really can't even see it? No, not even remotely. I think Jack Black has rounder cheeks and kinder eyes, and I, 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 I can't see it. I'm astonished. I've talked to a few other people. It, he's almost in my eyes. I know this sounds ridiculous, but he's truly like a clone of Jack Black. Like He looks almost exactly the same. He acts almost exactly the same. It seems like it's ridiculous that this person can exist who is basically Jack Black, but not Jack Black. But you disagree with me. I do. All right. Well, we're just going to have to agree to disagree, but I'm just putting it out there. I think he looks like Jack Black. But anyway, okay. So that kill that you were talking about, it's pretty great regardless of how I feel about the uh, smart home function or whatever. Let's talk about it. The table saw kill of the janitor. Yes. Yes. The way his toes are so close to oh, it. And then they hit it just, just a little bit, and you know he's fucked. Like, as soon as his toes touch it, you know he's fucked. The tension in that scene is played just perfect. Yes, dude. Like a violin. I loved it. What else? I know you want to talk about the lawnmower scene. I love that whole scene. So Karen or Aubrey Plaza or whatever... She has a boyfriend, and he's a jerk to Andy. Literally always drinking a beer. Like, so stereotypically crappy. Like, he's buckling his pants when Andy comes in in one scene. The worst. The worst! And he just generally sucks. And it turns out he's got a wife he's cheating on and kids. Yeah, and they make it pretty clear that this guy just sucks. You know, that's pretty much a pretty obvious point in this film. He sucks. Right, so he gets on a ladder to take down these Christmas lights. I'm kind of unclear on when this movie takes place, by the way. Oh, yeah, same here. It's like something coldish, winteryish sort of time in Chicago. Uh, something like that. Anyway, he's taking them down, and he feels the ladder rattle. And he's like, whoa, crazy raccoon. <laughs> Next thing we know, he falls straight down, 
lands directly in a standing up position, uh, and his legs just snap. No! For some reason, that sort of thing always gets me. It is so effective. It looks great in this movie, too. Honestly, it really does. But the best part is he's tangled in these Christmas lights, and Chucky starts the lawnmower, and it starts going along the trail of Christmas lights, getting closer and closer to him while he struggles to drag his body. I will just say it. I love lawnmower kills. I love lawnmower kills. I love them so much. Not just because of Dead Alive, but Motel Hell. I think Sinister did it. I love lawnmower kills. They are so, so, so satisfying. You were laughing pretty hard in the theater. I am a psycho for sure. I think I was the only one doing that during that scene, which... I don't know what that says about me, but I loved it. I loved the tension. I loved knowing what was going to happen and just kind of seeing it play out. I loved what it looked like. It was just, ugh. My favorite part is that it scalps him and his hair gets tossed onto a lawn gnome. So good. So good. Such a good touch. This film definitely got kills right. They felt super satisfying and visceral in this one. And, uh... Let me just ask you to kind of close this out. So his face gets torn off, and then Chucky puts his face on a watermelon for Andy to see. And then there's a subplot in the film about them trying to get rid of the watermelon head. Do you remember this, Allie? What did you think about this subplot? Oh, I remember it vividly. But before we talk about them trying to dispose of the watermelon, let's talk about chucky's inspiration for taking shane's face and putting it on something it's because they were watching texas chainsaw massacre yes yeah yeah, that's the reason why i should have mentioned that that's an important detail thank you Allie. but trying to dispose of the watermelon I thought it was just a ragtag group of kids doing the best they could, and every step of the way, it was hilarious. I thought it was pretty funny. I like how dark the implication was. Like, if they get caught, it's literally, like, the worst (laughs) thing they could get caught with. It's really terrible. I love that. Uh, The only... Can I just say the only thing I didn't like about it? It's not even something I didn't like about it. I love it. I... What are the names of his friends? Pug? I think it's Pug. It sounded like Puck. A little bit, but I think it's Pug. And what is the girl's name? Fallon? Val? Fallon? Val? I don't know. It was very distracting. I really just wished that they had different names. I know that's very rude. (laughs) But I just kind of wish that they had different names. But overall, that watermelon subplot, I enjoyed it. I thought it added some really nice dark humor to the movie. Would you agree? Absolutely. And... Folks, I think that does it. I think so, too. I think this was a big one. Yeah, it was. This might be our biggest episode yet. Thank you so much for sticking with us and listening to this episode. We really hope you enjoyed it. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Yes, and send us emails at spooksquadpodcast at gmail.com, and you might get featured on the podcast. Or, as Dan always says, let's grab a beer sometime. Absolutely. So, from Spook Squad, this is Dan. And Allie. Signing out.